to welcome our listeners to our podcast series, Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference at Aus der Kultur der Welt Berlin. My name is Anna Teixeira Pinto, and together with Ansam Frank and Kader Atia, we are co-organizing this event. Our guest today is Barner Essi, Associate Professor in the Department of African American Studies at Northwestern University. His research and teaching interests are in the areas of black political thought, critical theory, and critical race studies. He is the author of the forthcoming Raceocracy, White Sovereignty and Black Lives Politics, and co-editor of After Ferguson, After Baltimore, The Challenge of Black Death and Black Life for Black Political Thought. Please join me in welcoming Professor Barner Essie. Thank you. Pleased to be here. As you know, your essay, Escaping Liberty, has been an important building block or reading for an exhibition that took place at the Haus der Kultur an der Welt some two years ago, where the catalog is currently in print, finally, um, with the title Parapolitics, Cultural Freedom and the Cold War. And I guess I, I would just, because we have been conversing over this I'll just use that as an entry point today because it is also such an exemplary case of how a universal concept or a universalism actually functions as a mechanism of exclusion or a form of silencing or, as you call it, a form of foreclosure in the sense of making a constitutive aspect of its own formulation unspeakable at the same time meaning the conception of Western liberty being crafted upon forms of unfreedom, forms of pr the production upon which it depends of commodity, of the of unfree matter, of slavery, etc. So I'd just like to enter by this, by perhaps asking you to run us through this argument again with regards to Isaiah Berlin's very famous article on the two concepts of liberty, which somehow really is articulating all the premises of a liberal, um, of the liberal modern discourse around freedom slash liberty, right? And then basically tell us what you've done with it, because I think the mechanics of that is really quite crucial for what we, uh, what we are aiming at discussing here. Right. So, um, well, thank you for the introduction and thank you for that uh, really complex question, which uh, requires me to uh, respond appropriately. I think what I'm doing in the article Escaping Liberty is trying to, to think through what is the modern idiom of uh, concepts like liberty and the extent to which their liberal articulation has to be thought through the colonial sedimentation which accompanies liberalism in every move that liberalism makes. So that then raises the question, if there are universal claims being made within the context of a modernizing philosophical, social and political enterprise, then what is the horizon of those uh, modern claims? And in that context, how do we understand the figuration of liberty? 
So Eyes of Berlin just becomes a very useful jump-off point to looking at one of the most exemplary uh, sort of sketchings of the liberal idea of liberty, uh, particularly as it coalesces around the idea of positive and negative liberty. Positive liberty being that sense of the unfettered movement and self-determination and autonomy that a lot of people ascribe to uh, you know, being free and negative liberty, which is more privileged by Berlin, is this idea of having, uh, you know, an experience of life with little or no interference. You know, Republican theorists would say, well, it's not so much interference, it's about non-domination. And what's interesting about Berlin, as is interesting about most of liberal theory, is that the, uh, the exemplary values and the values which are idealized are all crafted and gestated in the context of a heavily saturated colonial world, beginning with slavery in the Americas, extending right throughout to the rest of the world. So the question then becomes, to what extent is this universal claim for liberty a claim that can be claimed universally? And if you start to pose that kind of question, you see the question crops up for liberal theorists, albeit not in the form that they want to tackle it head on. It crops up in a series of foreclosures, which is to say, preempting the possibility of having to encounter that kind of question. So what I try to do in that article is to track those moments of foreclosure. And what is interesting is that those moments of foreclosure often erupt at the times when the theorist has to deal with the world, has to say something about how the rest of the world is reacting against liberal claims and liberal postulations. And with someone like Isaiah Berlin, he finds himself having to comment on claims for freedom which are being mobilized by uh, colonized populations, Asia and in Africa. And because he's a universal thinker, he wants to adjudicate. He wants to say something about these claims. And he finds that these claims of freedom coming in the 1950s in Asian countries and African countries are associated with what he calls positive liberty, which he sees as a kind of totalitarian liberty, which he associates with you know, communist regimes and fascist regimes and so on. And he translates these claims into... Uh, positive liberty as claims for identity and sort of ethnic valuation. So that would be the move that he does to sort of exclude the, uh, the authenticity of anti-colonial claims for freedom, because they don't actually invest in his liberal ways of thinking. But the one thing I should say to underline this is that if you start to trace the lineage of thinking about liberty in the liberal tradition, what you find is on the one hand, yes, there's the context in which questions of slavery and colonialism are foreclosed from that possibility, but you're seeing the thinking of liberty from the position of those who already have liberty, from those who are thinking about the possibility of their liberty being threatened rather than being the position of unfreedom. So in effect, what we end up with in the liberal tradition of espousing liberty is the slaveholder's liberty, is the colonizer's liberty. It's never articulated in terms of historical specific forms of unfreedom. 
I would just like to ask you to zoom maybe into one detail, um, simply because I might not have fully grasped it myself. So the link to positive liberty, to a kind of totalitarian conception of it, how, could you just repeat how that, how that is particular, like how is that articulated? Well, Berlin would see positive liberty as that which runs roughshod over individuals because it tends to emphasize collectivism. It tends to emphasize a sense of a, an organic community. And that is anathema to Berlin. What needs to be prized and valorized above all is the sanctity of the individual and not the community. So there is a, a sort of juxtaposition between um, a kind of an exteriority and an interiority that needs to be protected, right? And I mean, the, the exteriority somehow being associated with the collective dimension and then equaled to or uh, the, the kind of the jargon of totalitarianism. I just wonder to what extent, because I've been trying ever since I read your article, been trying to sort of understand to what degree, you know, the concept of, to what degree this is premised on, on property, on the question of, of being an owner um, versus being owned and being an owner affording a certain so form of self-ownership, which then necessitates that clear boundary towards an external world that can be rendered as unfree matter, but is also that which should not infringe upon your liberty. So it seems to me that this concept, like the way you are figuring this space that Isaiah Berlin crafts there really is also or could be rendered in the manner of a slaveholder's sort of, you know, um, how would one call that? Like, like border management no? or something that, that ought to be kept out, but at the same time is self-constitutive. So I just try to right. try, like I just try to hear how if you thought this also in relation to property. Well, I think that's I think that's correct. I think it's uh, it's in relation to property mediated by the concept of a possessive individualism, a possessive individualism, the kind of idea that Sebing Fierson made popular, which talks about you know autonomy and sovereignty in an individual, but autonomy and sovereignty in the individual is associated with the capacity to own things, right? And if you are in the state of being owned, you don't have individual sovereignty. Um, but what I would say, having said that, is it's not necessarily premised on that relation, but it does take advantage of that formation because the very positive liberty which um, Isaiah Berlin proscribes is actually the conditions of possibility for the negative liberty that he values. Because if you look at the history of colonialism, the history of colonialism in effect is uh, made possible and mobilized by a positive liberty, the collectivism of colonial identity. It's the constitution of the slaveholders. So what you find in the establishment of a negative liberty, which is woven around the sanctity of the individual, is the foreclosure of, if I can use this term right now, a constituent power 
that was embedded in the collectivity of a colonialist mentality, a colonial Western formation, a slaveholder's constitution, if you will. I was also really interested in this because I think that there's actually two different things occurring, uh, you know, like in this uh, Isaiah Berlin claim. And one, of course, is like this British totalitarian school and this, um, you know, inability to acknowledge that any action that is not uh, driven by selfish motives can be said to be voluntary, right? You know, as in like only selfish actions are voluntary. So, of course, like by definition, any form of collective action is coercive. And this is still belonging to what we could say is, uh, uh, you know, like it, this is still part of like the, uh, what this discourse is like consciously foregrounding. There is, however, something else that I find like even more interesting that you tap into, which is this other level in which the word slavery and enslavement keep cropping up in modern political theory and modern political science. And uh, these words are actually foreclosing the possibility of modern political science looking at actual process of enslavement. So it's it's a bit like, um, you know, like I'm, I find it fascinating the way language functions here, you know, as a way of like... Um, saying something and at the same time making uh, it uh, impossible to say that very thing. I'm not sure I am being very clear here, but I think uh, you understood. Yeah, I do understand. I think um, what you're uh, drawing my attention to, perhaps something I should have uh, said earlier, is the, the, the double way you like that slavery functions um, in the discourse of liberalism and uh, Western political theory generally. Um, the the idea of modernity is the idea of creating a, a modern world of modern sort of self-legislating individuals, demarcating civilized communities through liberalism and capitalism and democracy, and it's premised on universalism. But what we find in the narration of that premise is the inability to take into consideration anything that's outside of the, uh, the valorization of a European lineage, which is increasingly racialized as white. So having said that, it means that there has to always be a double move, consciously or unconsciously, which involves including the European and excluding the non-European, or valorizing European and valorizing the non-European. You see those two moves uh, conflated in the invocation of slavery. So what does that mean when slavery is invocated? It means that you have a understanding of slavery largely as metaphor. It's metaphor because it's traced through the lineage from uh, ancient Greece through Rome. It's basically the tradition in which people who look and think like us, who could be marked by slavery, that is a crime against people like us. And those who are excluded by the possibility of being part of the modern world, it's simply unthinkable that one would be talking about slavery in relation to people of African descent. It simply doesn't arise. I mean, you could have said to, you know, thinkers of the Enlightenment and one or two would have recognized this, one or two did, that there is a contradiction 
between talking about uh, slavery, uh, sort of limiting freedom and maintaining slavery. But for most, that's a contradiction if you have a discourse which says the rest of the world should be part of this universalism. If you have a discourse that says the, you know, the universal claims for the world are inscribed in the presence of Europe, you know, in a sort of Hegelian manner, then it's simply not a contradiction. Slavery and the limitation of freedom means the limitation of the freedom of Europeans, of white populations. Right. Uh, you know, like, of course, like, uh, in, in this type of discourse, you would just simply say that... Uh, uh, you, you, it's not a moral problem or it's not a moral crime to enslave those that are not capable of freedom because they just don't have the predisposition. They cannot emancipate themselves uh, from their, um, you know, like natural conditions, so to say. Well, you would say that, but it, I would stress it's, it's simply unthinkable. It's not a locution, it's not an idea that can occur within the discourse. It would be like us having a conversation and somebody saying to us, well, why is it that insects were not allowed to take part in the debate? That's simply unthinkable. Now, if you expand the discourse, as you see when people begin to expand discourses into the realm of animal rights, then you begin to see how within that horizon other things simply become thinkable. But for the majority of the modern discourse, as you say, um, you know, certain populations are not associated with the modern sort of evangelical idea of freedom. They're simply outside of that horizon. The question then arises, which I think obviously has been tackled many times already, but I think has absolutely in no way one could say arrived or can possibly arrive without structural changes. But let's say, you know, like say a kind of well-meaning liberalism or a variant thereof would of course wonder why not simply expand now that we've done some errors in the past the sphere of liberal sociality, right? And has emancipation not been that very expansion? Right? Is that not part of the teleology of modernity? Right? Um, so, so that there is this kind of, I think that the 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 idea of expand of of the of the very question of you know could it not be, could we not right the wrongs of the past by correcting and widening the sphere of uh, like that that very idea which is in a way a continued expansion but also at the same time takes place in a blind spot exactly on how a concept of freedom has depended and continues to depend on the creation of the idea of an externalizable world equated with unfree matter at large yeah so I, I just wonder how you would how you would phrase that liberal idea or the well like also in relation to its current the current forms it takes no like uh, in the political reality of say the a, a new administration taking over um, how how you are perceiving this 
liberal fallacies expressions at the in the current moment okay so i mean the th i think the first thing to say is that you know you you cannot not have a concept of freedom without a concept of unfreedom so the idea that you know uh, absolute freedom is possible or even desirable i think that has to be eliminated from the from the start freedom is always going to be a relative concept And it's largely a relative concept because it emerges in the conditions of unfreedom, right? It's a way of marking out a demarcation between different kinds of possibilities and different kinds of actualities organized around freedom and unfreedom. So that's the first thing. You know, we're always going to be debating, you know, what is the line of unfreedom here in relation to what we call freedom? And it's important not to fix that line. It's important to, to see that line as contingent and porous and always movable. Okay, If only to you know, talk about those whose unfreedom might be in jeopardy should they transgress the law. Sometimes polities are organized in that way. But having said that, the idea of the, uh, the ever-expanding expanding incremental Uh, forward march of liberalism liberating everybody has this original problem of its emergence in, uh, you know, deep power relations of inequalities and injustices, capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy. So the question then becomes, can the liberation of individuals be the condition of possibility for liberating communities, populations, strata. And the problem with that, of course, is that liberalism doesn't recognize populations, communities, strata. What it recognizes is a template that's been established by individual property holders who are not seen as a community, who are not seen as a class, And everyone else has to somehow mobilize their aspirations for freedom within that individual template. So if you take a current example like, uh, you know, the mobilizations of Black Lives Matter, every single killing of a black person by the police is translated by the criminal justice system into the killing of an individual. But in the politics of the mobilization of Black Lives Matter, this is translated into the killing of communities, into the killing of populations. And because the liberal system doesn't understand or accept and certainly forecloses this idea that the question of race is understood on one side as white supremacy, but is understood in the liberal side as individual racial discrimination, you have an impasse there, if not an aporia, which will continue to repeat itself as it currently is repeating itself. So if you take um, the, the polarity that you set up between uh, white supremacy and, and sort, of the, sort of the white supremacist regime of Trump and the burgeoning neoliberalism regime of Uh, Biden, and they're both sort of neoliberal projects. I mean, let's face it, you know, Democratic Party and the Republican Party have been neoliberal projects for the last 30 years. 
So we're talking about, you know, the narcissism of sort of minor differences. But if we're thinking around this question um, of race in particular, it seems to me that uh, what we're talking about when we talk about foreclosure is the impossibility in discourse of imagining the narration of the constituent power of whiteness in the modern project. So what I mean by that is this, that every single inflection of an idea, of a description, of a narration presupposes the non-recognition of the non-democratic, the non-liberal, the violent, the gratuitous founding of democratic and liberal ideas. Another name for that is the colonial, right? And a way of adding a signature to the founding moment of the colonial is to recognize that the signature in modernity is what I call white sovereignty, which is always organized around values of violence. And what we see translated throughout Britain, throughout France, throughout Germany, throughout the US, is the formation of modern regimes on principles that are idealized as universal while denying systematically by simply not referring to it and making it unthinkable, the tradition of violence and colonialism orchestrated through a sort of accepted but not nameable white sovereignty, which continues to underpin the more idealized values and traditions of liberalism, democracy, and capitalism. So we see in, some, in a place like the US, the unspoken, but nevertheless accepted and prescribed white sovereignty, saturating all kinds of questions. So let me give an empirical example. Let us say that on the one side, if you wanted to associate that with the Republicans, there's a non-recognition of structural racism and an inability to accept that it's systemic. We've seen that debated. But then on the other side, you hear a recognition of structural racism and the importance of doing something about racism in a criminal justice system. An apparent polarization. But if you then ask the question, well, what do we mean by structural racism when we're saying it exists or we're saying it doesn't exist? What do we mean by uh, systemic racism if we're opposing it or if we're overlooking it? And what you find in answer to each of those questions is the answer will be determined by what white citizens think. White citizens are in a position to determine, A, whether something called structural racism is overturned or not, and B, what will get called structural racism, right? And if you think about the history even of the concept of racism itself, which broadly comes into being in the uh, early 20th century, 1920s and 1930s, if you look at its political and conceptual configuration, one of the things that we see in that genealogy 
is that the concept of racism by which I mean, you know, the capacity to indict race as problematic and invoke an oppositional response to it, it emerges in relation to what's happening uh, in Nazi Germany uh, and Nazi Germany's regime in relation to the Jewish populations, its use of racial science and so on. And it begins to become a concept as you move through World War II and you look at what's happening in Europe, uh, to Jews in Europe and, and Slavonic people in Europe and Roma people in Europe, it begins to be associated with objecting to the mobilization of race against white populations. And if you look at a lot of the thinkers, liberal thinkers, Marxist thinkers, who used the term race in the 1930s and the 1940s, when they're analyzing the emergent um, uh, Nazi regime, they will actually object to the question of racism. Remember, World War II was often referred to as a war against racism, while saying nothing about the colonial world that's organized around race or Jim Crow that's organized around race. So that double think is even in the very category of racism itself, which after World War II is picked up by people of color, by black activists, as a way of saying, well, you wouldn't think about these issues beforehand, but apparently a precedent has been set. So here is a lens to think about our issues. You know, and that comes together in a very sort of critical and dramatic way in a petition which is uh, presented to the United Nations in 1951 by the New York Civil Rights Organization uh, called the Civil Rights Congress. And the name of the petition is We Charge Genocide. And if you look at that petition, you see some of the earliest uses of the term racism. And you see claims as well as, you know, they're sort of giving you a catalog of the systematic violence by state and civil authorities against black populations. They're saying explicitly that what we have in the US is a racial state, a racist state comparable to what happened in Germany. So they're trying to mediate a black experience through an experience that had foregrounded white populations in the critique of something called racism. And that underlines what I said earlier about the inscription of white sovereignty. White sovereignty determines even how we will address questions of race. It just resonated interestingly with the conversation I had yesterday with Dirk Moses, who's publishing a new book basically on problematizing the concept of genocide as something that you know applies to, as basically a concept that is part of that post-war settlement which would basically prolong a certain form of white sovereignty as a standard or white supremacy under a kind of rehabilitated you know un like um uh, post paradigm no um like the something that that could claim for a certain period of time to be a post-racial regime um or, or, or presented itself in that manner through the through the international framework set up under American hegemony. 
and it just like occurred to me this like he he made this really like rather um you know at least uh, i i i found it rather rather powerful this kind of shift from earlier writings about the work of Raphael Lemkin who established that genocide convention with a certain you know with a certain attention to um to the to the colonial genealogy um with with clear limits as well but then you know how that the institutionalization and the actual uh, acceptance of the of the genocide convention um, would have to foreclose that uh, that possibility to to have that term resonate with with the colonial constituents um, of Western power for multiple also practical reasons, right? Because of course that would have meant um, for the Western powers that they are uh, they are still empires. Uh, what they did there could have been charged with genocide. It would have meant. Uh, um, all kind of other things impossible at that po point. So sort of, sort of this crime of all crimes um, becomes this kind of actually a depoliticizing manner, which which prevents the continued colonial apparatus um, to be uh, uh, to be included in that form of uh, framework of uh, international law organized around this crime of all crimes. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, it's interesting what happens to Raphael Lampkin's uh, conceptualization of, of, of genocide. I mean, if you go right back to uh, possibly uh, one of the first publications where it appears, the book that he publishes, I think, in, in 1942 or 1944, Access Rule in Europe. And if you look at that book, what he's done is to compile all the procedures and the policies and the practices and the laws of uh, Nazi Germany in different parts of Europe. And then when you look at the, the configuration of these policies, laws, and practices, what you see is the imposition of a colonial regime, as many historians are currently recognizing that Nazi Germany was attempting to practice European colonialism on Europe. Um, the problem, of course, is that a universalism that commands the rest of the world, that emerges within the gestation of the West, cannot put into question the location and the apparatus that gestates that colonialism. So what emerges as genocide, even in its attachment to things like the elimination of a race or an ethnic group is at the same time being detached from the colonial. In fact, the whole question around genocide and how it gets applied and how it gets understood takes us right back to the heart of the matter of the way in which race has been deployed as a concept to be understood and not deployed, which is to say that the modern conception of race, even in anti-racism, as something to be critiqued, is often returning to this idea that race is a pseudo-biological category, which of course it is. But the problem with returning to that idea is that it completely forecloses the formation of race as a colonial practice, which only subsequently 
gets biologized. And biology is then seen as the foundation of race when the foundation of the productivity of race as a practice is its colonial formation. And we constantly are pushed back by racism on one side and anti-racism on the other to disputing this question of the biological and at the same time that dispute forecloses the possibility of looking at the colonial lineage that created the concept of the racist practice. Um, there, there is uh, an interesting aspect in this debate that uh, recently resurfaced, which is this question of like reason and unreason, or like rationality and irrationality. And uh, you know, like the singularity of the Holocaust is always like um, argued in terms of um, it being like a completely rational. Uh, uh, killing so basically like this uh, cannot be compared with any colonial crimes because you can rationalize all the colonial crimes as in like uh, you can uh, explain them in terms of like uh, uh, gains that could be accrued uh, whereas with the uh, holocaust you know like you always have this kind of claim that this was like a crime that uh, is a crime of unreason and uh, here you also have like this constant uh, um, attempt to frame uh, fascism and in this case Nazism uh, as something that belongs to the sphere of unreason or to the sphere of irrationality. Uh, and, you know, like I also find this, uh, you know, like again, there's here like something interesting that, uh, you know, it's preventing a continuity to be, uh, you know, like it's preventing something to be seen in a continuity with colonial history. What I would say in relation to that is really that the, the boundary line between reason and unreason is, uh, is always contingent and always shifting. And, and one of the reasons why there's always a boundary line between reason and unreason, which is always contingent and always shifting, is because on both sides of the line, within reason, you can always find unreason, which is, you know, always presented as an exception to the rule. Within unreason, you can always find reason, which is always seen as an aberration or somebody that's come to their senses. So, you know, um, you take, for example, any conceivable atrocity in, uh, in manner, in shape, or form that was committed under Nazism was also committed throughout the colonial world in the land of liberal reason. So the question then becomes, what makes the atrocities committed under Nazism belong to the camp of unreason and the atrocities committed under colonialism over 400 years begin to the camp of reason. Well, at that point, what you get is, well, we object to those atrocities in the deepest way, but we can accommodate our atrocities in an extremely superficial way. And that's part of the problem. But if you were looking at the mechanics of what was happening in Nazi Germany, what you're finding is perhaps the only real difference is the intensity of the focus in a shorter spirit, period of time. And in Zygmunt Bauman's terms, 
the greater application of industrialization to the production of genocide, its acceleration, the use of technology to make a more productive killing machine, even though the majority of populations of Jewish descent were killed by being shot rather than being incinerated. But virtually all of those possibilities were not only being practiced in the field of Western colonialism, but Nazi Germany themselves admitted, spoke about how they copied these techniques. They copied the techniques of legislation around eugenics from American states. They were deeply influenced by the eugenic movement in the US. Hitler himself admired the British in India. They often thought that what they were doing in uh, uh, the Ukraine, for example, was what the British were doing in India. They admired the way in which Native Americans were ethnically cleansed from, uh, from the US. They understood themselves to be doing something similar with Jews in Europe. So the objection was really, and this is one of the, the, the arguments I try to make, was the political uh, administration under which this was being done. It was fascism, it was not liberalism. And that seems to me, you know, to indicate as, you know, something I've tried to argue recently, that part of World War II was a war between two different kinds of white sovereignty, you know, with very different political orientations. Of course, the distinction itself is a, is a problematic. Like, like there are there are moments when when the when when just like when the question of is does a military objective, does a labor power objective, does a, a settler colonial genocidal objective in any way um, constitute a different sort of um moral regime or how what one would assess them as more reasonable versus the absolute unreason of of that of that kind of abyss of hatred um i think that is to a certain extent you know a question of um it it is both the the differentiations to me seems legitimate and at the same time it is absolutely illegitimate or even utterly necessary to to wonder why you know military power in in colonial contexts committed by reasonable states should constitute in any form um, something um, of a totally different order altogether no? I think it's a it's a very good point I think you know the way I would address it was to go back to the line between reason and unreason. Um, if you're outside of the, the, the fascistic comprehension of the world, it's absolutely senseless. There's absolutely no point. If you're within the fascist conception of the world, then the idea of creating a, 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 a German-controlled Europe with a sense of purity, with a sense of uh, unmitigated nationalism, imperialism, that's the rationale. And that's the rationale of ethnic cleansing. But if you compare the whole of Western colonialism, if you're outside of this reason structure of Western colonialism, if you're the enslaved or you're the colonized, it's senseless. So we've got two sources 
through which we can talk about senselessness. And then it seems to me we're going to get into a ridiculous area where we say, well, which is more senseless? You know, if I agree with the liberal point of the critique of fascism, then I see everything that fascism did as senseless. But if I also agree with the liberal point of view of colonialism, I tend not to see what was done under the colonial regime as senseless. And I think that's the problem that we have because, you know, in Europe today, you see racist attacks, you see the killings of black populations, which are senseless, but they're not represented as senseless. Just as in the, the way in which lynchings took place in the early 20th century in the US were not represented as senseless. So we have to have a conversation about the context in which we ascribe senselessness so that we're not actually eliminating from that conversation, you know, the wider formation, the wider colonial formation, which produces that kind of senseless atrocity against populations invariably marked as non-white. But, you know, in reality, the, re the rationality would be extremely close because the rationale is the removal of, like, an unwanted population. So, uh, from that perspective, it's all about whether you think that there is sense in that removal or not. So, basically, you just say, like, the difference is that you think that it's senseless to remove the Jewish population from Germany, but you wouldn't think that it's senseless to remove the Indian population from the Americas. Right. And, and we should bear in mind that there's a prior removal. Uh, there's a, a, a removal which is prior to territorial removal. You know, one of the things that I like to stress a lot is that if we look at how the Jewish population was being marked in Germany and in Europe, they were actually being expelled from the category of European and white into the category of non-European and non-white. Because if you ask the question, well, who gets disenfranchised? Who gets herded into ghettos? Who gets eliminated from their jobs? Who gets rounded up? Those kinds of technologies and those kinds of policies in the 1930s and 40s are reserved for non-white populations. So once you're on that trajectory of being contained as assigned as and transformed into non-white populations, you can ultimately be ethnically cleansed, the object of gratuitous violence and atrocities. And I think we have to come to terms with the fact that unlike perhaps the rest of Europe, Nazi Germany was responding to Jewish populations as if they're simply non-white, And often they couldn't understand why the West was objecting because they would say things in their propaganda, we're simply doing to the Jews what you are doing to the Negroes, to use the idiom of that time. Right. I mean, I, I think that also like we tend to uh, look at this history as if there is like really something singular happening in Germany at the moment. And there wasn't because, of course, like anti-Semitism was like rampant. And, uh, you know, like other countries in Europe had like rabbit uh, expressions of anti-Semitism. 
you know, like actually like one could even argue that it was like much stronger in France than it was in Germany. Uh, you know, like also like fascism was something that uh, had a very strong political expression in France. You can invade Ethiopia. There's no moral objection when the Italians under Mussolini do that in 1936. But when you begin to invade Czechoslovakia, then Poland, and then France, then we become concerned. And I think George Orwell, for example, expressed this uh, in a very pithy way in an article that he writes in 1939. I'm going to have to use the N-word here, but the, the title of the article is Not Counting Niggers, right? And he says in this article that when you look at the objections of the West to the assault on democracy that's taking place in Germany, and there are a number of writers who are writing about this, it seems to him, and I say this as because it was already seeming as such to African-American writers like Langston Hughes or Caribbean writers like uh, Claudia Jones, that you only object to the assault on democracy when you don't include colonized populations who are already being assaulted in British and French democracies. So what I'm trying to get at is really the way World War II has been narrated, why was it a world war? Because it was an imperial war and it went right across the world and people's empires went to war. The way in which World War II is being narrated is if uh, what was happening in Europe under Nazi Germany was an aberration in terms of political, colonial technologies and techniques, it was not an aberration, right? And in being narrated as an aberration, what you get foreclosed is the colonial formation of modernity, which underpins all universal claims, and the, and the foreclosure of the, um, the, the, the sort of um, the umbilical cord between the colonial and race, which gets fixated on you know, biological objections rather than political colonial objections. Yeah, I, I, I think that point, I mean, I think the, the, the whole, what that does to the, to the kind of perception of the post-war order is, is really quite substantial and crucial, no? I mean, spe specifically for sort of this post-war order as it is perceived in 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 Western first world countries, obviously very different from whether you come from Bandung perspective or, uh, uh, but this sort of post-war, also the, the sort of temporary social democratic compromise being premised on this, uh, or underlying underneath that social democratic veneer of a historical compromise that at least lasted for, say, some 30 years, sort of New Deal social democracy that had expulsed its Marxist leanings, or at least the ones related to property, basically, or to the property order. Underneath that being a kind of, being a foreclosure of the colonial content of modernity as such. I think that is a, a crucial um, 
really something that 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 also is inevitable and breaks open at the at the moment inevitably or where it doesn't break open or where it is continuously foreclosed we see the emergence of another form of or a new form or a renewed form of of fascism mushrooming up in all of these cracks right this is what's pretty much happening right now okay i was just going to say as long as we don't commit the same mistake of thinking that the emergence or the re-emergence of fascism and neo-fascism fascism are unconnected with the greater colonial project. They're not. And sometimes this is the, part, the problem when fascism is domesticated as if it's something internal to that nation or internal to Europe and not to the construction of Europe as a colonial project. And you begin to see that in, in, in the reasons why you know, fascism is very closely in its reemergence to mobilizations of white supremacy, very close in its reemergence to opposition to multiculturalism, opposition to immigrants, which it wishes to ethnically cleanse, morphs into uh, racist attacks, begins to problematize white liberal elites who are turning our country into something unrecognizable as no longer European and no longer white. We shouldn't detach fascism from its colonial formations. On that note, I also wanted to ask, because I feel that uh, there, there's a different expression that's perhaps a bit more subtle, which is, um, you know, like the way racial animosity tends to find an expression in this kind of language of principle. And... Uh, um, you know, like, of course, like, whenever individualism and possessive individualism is mobilized, we are always kind of like tapping into this kind of like racial formations and colonial formations. But also, like, uh, uh, more recently, it tends to crop up around this, like, concept of, like, freedom and freedom of speech and individual liberties. The one thing that I would say is that um, in that context, what we always find is that crimes that are committed by white individuals are crimes for which solely and only the white individual is responsible. Crimes which are committed by non-white individuals become crimes for which their communities are responsible. So that's the first thing that I would want to unpack. If every crime that was committed by a white individual uh, the white community as a whole had to answer for, then we might be having something more like an equal world. And that's the way in which I would see that you have the retention of the colonial relation. Because in the colonial world, the crime of one of the colonized populations would be something for which the colonized population was held responsible and held accountable. But the crime of the single colonizer would not be, if it was recognized as a crime, something for which the whole colonized population would be held responsible. So that returns us back to the way in which the universal claims that surround the sanctity of the individual only surround the sanctity of Europeanized white individuals. Thank you, Barner. Thank you for sharing your
time and your um, knowledge with us. Um, and I look forward to more conversations. Okay, thank you very much. Please do take part. Thank you very much.